0: Today we are in 2nd Peter chapter 3. We're going to actually spend four weeks in 2nd Peter as we uh, end our study in this book and today we're the title of the message is Jesus is coming back part one. So let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Lord we love you. We thank you for the the grace that we have in Christ. We thank you for the family that we have here in Calvary. And Lord, we do, as we were singing, we pray, God, that you would light a fire in us, that you would do a work in us. Even today, that would be a lasting work as we open up your word. And so we give you this time now, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wondered why the passenger side mirror on your car has this saying on it. It says objects are closer than they appear. The reason is that mirror is convex, meaning that it allows for a much wider angle of vision. Well, I think that we as believers are called to walk and live with a wider angle of vision as we seek to operate In this world that we're called to look at this world from an eternal perspective from a heavenly perspective that we are to see the events that are happening in our world in light of what scripture says and especially in light of what the Bible says about the return of Jesus Christ. And I think we could safely say that things are closer than they maybe appear. Because Jesus Christ is coming back. He is. Yeah, you can clap about that. And this has really been the great hope of the Christian church for over 2,000 years. And this is really the theme of 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's begin reading in our text. He begins by saying beloved. And I want to just pause there for a moment to let you know this is a sentiment of endearment. Peter is writing here to people that he loved. In fact, he is going to mention that word in describing them four different times in this one chapter. He's going to call them beloved because these are people that he dearly loves and these are people that the Lord dearly loves. And the same thing could be said about us. That's how the Lord refers to you and I who are his followers. He says that we are his beloved. And because God loves us dearly, he doesn't want us to be In the dark or caught off guard as it relates to the second coming of Jesus. So we read here, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep or died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But notice what says in verse 5 for this they willfully forget that by the word of god the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water and by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. For the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let me have your attention. I want you to notice that Peter says his aim in writing this is to stir them up by way of reminder. That phrase to stir up could literally be translated to wake you up, to stimulate your mind. Peter's saying, I'm writing this to wake you up. And I think there's a danger for all of us, especially those of us who have maybe been walking with the Lord for a while. And we've heard, you know, teachings about the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church. I think there can be a danger for us to kind of, you know, feel like, oh, I've heard that before. Oh, I know that. Oh, that that hasn't happened yet. And we can find ourselves in a place where we start to kind of get indifferent towards the word of God. You know, I have three adult children. In fact, my speaking of babies, my son Aaron and his wife Brooklyn, on Monday, their son Jack Harrison Salvato was born, and so we are rejoicing with them, and boy, he's a cutie. Check out Aaron's Instagram page, he has a bunch of pictures of him already on there. But uh, I have three adult kids, three grandkids, and my middle daughter, her name's Amy, when she was really, really young, she had this beautiful curly hair curly brown hair and everywhere we went people would comment and compliment her on her hair they'd be like oh your hair is so pretty your hair is so beautiful sometimes we would be in restaurants and people would be pointing across the restaurant and we knew what they were saying look at that little girl's hair well, my daughter heard, you know, so much about how beautiful her hair was that she, she kind of got indifferent to it. Kind of began to take it a little bit for granted. So one day she's with me. We're in the grocery store. She's sitting in the cart. She's probably about four years old. And the guy who's ringing up our groceries just pauses in the middle of what he's doing, looks at her and says, little girl, your hair is beautiful. And Amy just sits there, like, yeah, I've heard this a hundred times before, you know? And I look at her and I said, Amy, what do you say to the man? And she looks at him with a straight face and she says, Thank you. You have nice hair too. The guy was completely bald, <laughs> didn't have a hair on his head. <laughs> Now, what's interesting about that is, you know, Amy was kind of just going through the motions. You know, she was doing what we taught her to do. You were you pay a, a compliment with a compliment. And so that's what she was doing. And that's what can happen to us. We can find ourselves where we just start going through the motions and we can become complacent and lethargic and sort of grow indifferent to the things of the Lord and to, you know, this idea of the coming of the Lord. And so Peter says, Hey, I'm writing this. I'm reminding you to stir you up. I want to wake you up. You know, Paul did the same thing in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, writing in light of the coming of the Lord. He said this and do this, knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Paul said, it's time to wake up. Our salvation, it's closer right now than when we ever believed. And I think we are living in that day. So in the same way, Peter's saying, I want to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder concerning the coming of the Lord. Because we read in Revelation chapter 3 that Jesus, he doesn't want us as his church to be lukewarm You know, the church of Laodicea was lukewarm and Jesus said, you know, you guys, I wish you were hot or or cold because people that are cold, they know they're cold and they want to get hot. He says, I wish you were either hot or cold because you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus wants us to be hot. He wants us to be on fire knowing that the day is at hand that we are living in a time that we are getting nearer than we ever have before of the coming of Jesus. Now, there is a specific reason why Peter is wanting to stir them up concerning the coming of Jesus. And he mentions that in verse three. Notice he says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying where is the promise of his coming now a scoffer is one who treats lightly what should be taken seriously they treat it lightly like oh it's no big deal oh we heard that before oh we don't have to pay attention to that and if you've ever shared your faith before you've encountered scoffers haven't you you know, those who will say something as, you know, you start to talk to them about Jesus and, you're, and they're like, you're not one of those fundamentalists, are you? You're not one of those, you know, Bible thumping, you know, do you literally believe the Bible is true? You're not one of those closed-minded, non-thinking idiots, are you? That's how, how the, the the scoffers, they look at a lot of people, you know, that are Christians. But I want you to notice that Peter says here, in the last days, scoffers will come. And that phrase, the last days, speaks of a wide range of a time frame. You see, the last days literally began when Jesus was born. You see, from the time of Genesis chapter 3 at the fall, when the curse was pronounced, and God said that there would come one from the seed of the woman, Right there in Genesis chapter 3, giving reference to the virgin birth, that he would say there's going to come one who is going to crush the head of of Satan, the serpent. And from that time forward, God's people were looking for and waiting for the Messiah. And for thousands of years, all through the Old Testament, they were living under the Old Covenant. And then Jesus was born. The most long-awaited Messiah had entered into the world and Jesus would come and establish a new covenant in seeking after God. And it was there that the last days began. And the last days encompass that time from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. It kind of culminates with the second coming of Jesus. And then after that, we have what's called the millennial reign of Christ. And so that time frame makes up the last days. Now, here's what we need to understand, though. The Bible actually speaks of three comings of Jesus. Three comings, Pastor Rob? Really? Well, listen. The first coming, and here's the key phrase, is when Jesus came to planet Earth, and he came as the baby born in Bethlehem. He came the first time, the Bible says, to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of God. Of the worlds. He came to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. That was his first coming. In his second coming, he's also going to come to planet Earth. But he's not going to come the second time. He's not going to come as a lamb, but he's going to come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. As the conquering one. And he's going to set up his kingdom. And we can't wait for that to happen. At his first coming, he came to deal with sin. At his second coming, he's going to come and drive out all the politicians. And we can't wait for that, right? (laughs) And he's going to say, hey guys, let me show you how it's done. And he's going to set up a rule and a reign of perfect, just righteousness and perfect rule. He's going to fix all of the injustices that have plagued our world for thousands of years. So his first coming, he comes to planet earth as the baby, as the lamb. In his second coming, he's also coming to planet earth, but as the lion, as the conquering one. But in between the first and second comings is an event that is known as the rapture of the church. And in this, Jesus comes not to planet earth, that's the key, but he comes to the clouds. And the Bible says that his church, his bride, is caught up to meet him in the air. He takes us to heaven. And we're with him there, waiting for that time at the second coming, when we come back with him. It's going to be a glorious time. Now, there are those today that scoff at the idea of the rapture of the church they say, oh, that's not really in the Bible. That is not going to happen. And I actually want to spend next week dealing with that aspect of the scoffers. I was going to do it today, and I found myself going, there's no way I'm going to be able to cover all of this. So we're going to just... Spend our time next week delving into and looking at those who scoff at the idea of the rapture. We're gonna look at what it is, what the Bible says about it, and why the early church was expecting it and looking towards for it. But here in Second Peter chapter three, Peter is dealing primarily here with those who scoff at the idea of the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ is a major theme in Scripture. In fact... A full one-fifth of the entire Bible deals with either the end of days or the second coming of Christ. 1,845 times the Bible mentions the second coming of the Messiah. 17 of the 38 books in the Old Testament are given to this subject almost entirely. It's mentioned 318 times in the New Testament. In fact, one in every 30 verses speaks of the second coming of of Christ and the end of the age seven out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament deals with this issue in fact for every one verse that speaks about Christ's first coming there are eight that speak about his second coming for every one verse that speaks about his atonement there are two that speak about his second coming Jesus, 21 times personally referred to it, and 50 times we are called and told to be ready for it. And I think the Lord inspired that there would be so much written about the second coming of Jesus because he wants it to be in the forefront of our minds. He wants us to be living like we believe that he could come back at any moment. You know, I was in high school, I played baseball, and I was a pitcher. And there were two drills that we did every single practice as pitchers. Those drills were this. Our coach would say, okay, it's pitcher drill. And we'd get on the mound, and we'd throw the ball to home plate. And the first drill was our coach would hit a ball in between the first and second baseman and the idea is it was pulling the first baseman off of first base because our job was to run as the pitcher to first base to cover the base and there was a specific way that we were supposed to run over there to make sure that we were in the right position and so we did this over and over and over again the second drill was the pass ball drill and the idea was is there's an imaginary man on third base we throw a pass ball and so we race to home plate the catcher's running for the ball he picks it up throws it back to us we catch it and we tag the imaginary runner coming into home and we would do that over and over and over and over again and there were times when he would say you know okay pitcher drill and i think to myself oh no not again you know but there was a purpose to the repetition and the purpose was this our coach wanted this to be in the heat of the moment our immediate reaction He wanted it to be like muscle memory that if there was a pass ball or there's a ball hit to the right side that we're immediately, we're running to first base. If there's a pass ball, we're immediately coming to home plate that there would be no hesitation whatsoever. And I believe our heavenly coach repeats over and over and over again about the second coming of Christ because he wants it to be on the forefront of our minds. He wants it to be like muscle memory so that when things happen in our world that just seem crazy, our first reaction would not be to panic, that it wouldn't be that of fear, because we know that, hey, this is just what the Bible said would be happening in what I like to call the last of the last days. That we would know, hey, our world, it's not falling apart, it's actually falling into place. You know, somebody tried to imagine how the popular press would tell the story of the end of the world. They suggested this for the Wall Street Journal that they might have as the headline, Dow Jones plummets as the world ends. Whereas the USA Today, which has much simpler headlines, they would simply write, We're dead. <laughs> People Magazine would have this article, What will your favorite movie stars wear on their last night? Ladies Home Journal might have this article, Lose 10 pounds by Judgment Day with our new Armageddon diet. (laughs) Golf Digest would have the article, Make your last round your best round. And finally, Christian Weekly would simply say, We told you so. And that's the whole idea is we know, we know this stuff shouldn't surprise us because we know this is what the Bible says would be happening in these last days. It should be of no surprise to us. So Peter is writing to stir up our minds by way of reminder so that we know it's etched within us, etched within our hearts that Jesus is coming again. Now in the remainder of our time today, I want us to see two things. I want us to look at, first of all, the argument of the scoffers. And then secondly, I want to look at what I would call the rebuttal of the saints. So first of all, we'll look at the argument of the scoffers. And there's three main arguments that they use. The first is the argument from ridicule. These are mockers, and so they're mocking. They say, where is the promise of his coming? Come on, where is it? This is an emotional attack. It's one that plays on feelings. And you see, some of the Christians that Peter was writing to, who were going through intense persecution, some of them were thinking, like some of you maybe have, been, have thought from time to time, Jesus should have come back by now. I mean, things are getting intense. I mean, how much worse is this going to get, Lord? You know, you should have come back. And because Jesus hadn't come back, some of them were starting to doubt if he was ever going to come back. And these mockers are playing upon that doubt and emotion with their ridicule. Come on, is he? Where, where's the promise of his coming? You guys have been talking about that forever. That's the emotional argument, the argument from ridicule. Secondly is the argument from morality. Look at verse 3. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking, here's the key phrase, walking according to their own lust. These guys want an eschatology. That's the study of end times things. They want an eschatology that fits their immorality. You see, people who are living in immorality and in rebellion, they don't want Jesus to come back. They don't want to believe that there's a second coming, that, that there's a judgment, because that means they're going to be held accountable for the way that they're living. And so they they want to deny that. They don't want to ever have to answer to God for their lifestyle. And so those who believe that there's no judgment, they endorse sayings like, let's eat, drink, and be merry." They endorse sayings like, hey, don't worry, be happy. Let's just party hardy or party like there's no tomorrow. That's the mindset of those. Say, there's no judgment. There's nothing to, to worry about. They want to live a immoral, lust-controlled life because they don't think they have anything to answer to. They don't want any accountability. And if Jesus is coming back, then they're going to have to answer to someone. So there's the emotional argument, there's the moral argument, and then third, there's the argument of uniformity. In verse 4, at the very end, they make this ridiculous statement. Notice it says, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Here's what they're saying. You know, there's never been a God who has intervened in the history of mankind with some kind of judgment. It's never happened, so it's never going to happen. It's a belief system known as uniformity, which has been the prevalent philosophy in our Western culture for the last hundred years. Think of the idea of uniform. It's the idea of things just are the, you know, they go along the way they've always gone along. Things will just, you know, continue to be as they have always been. And there hasn't been any disruptions in the past, no cataclysmic things that have happened. And so that's not going to happen at all. The idea is, hey, there's no God who's going to judge this world. So they make a mockery. They call evangelicals, oh, those are those doomsday prophets. Prophets. So we have the argument of the scoffers, the emotional argument, that of ridicule. We have the argument of immorality, those who don't want anybody to hold them accountable. And then we have the argument of uniformity. Now let's consider the rebuttal of the saints. There's four things that Peter says here that we should remember. The first is that we need to remember the scriptures. Notice he says, beloved, verse 1. I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. He's speaking here of the Old Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament. In fact, just look back to chapter 1, verse 20 for a moment. Keep your place here in chapter 3. Look at verse 20. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And here's what Peter is saying. These men who were moved by the Holy Spirit that wrote these things down in the pages of the Old Testament, they spoke a lot about the second coming of Christ, the Messiah, and of the judgment, the coming judgment upon the world. We could spend the rest of our morning talking about this, but we don't have the time. So let me give you just a few examples. The psalmist wrote in Psalm fifty-one, verses 1 through 4, Psalm 50, verses 1 through 4, The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From Zion, that's Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him and a storm rages around him. On high, he summons heaven and earth in order to judge his people. It's heavy. Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 13, verse 10, said this, Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. I will punish the world for its evil and wicked people for their iniquities. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humiliate the insolence of tyrants. I will make a human more scarce than fine gold and mankind more rare than the gold of Ophir. That's a heavy verse. And then he says this, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its foundations at the wrath of the Lord of armies on the day of His burning anger. Those are two examples. We could go on and on. Read the minor prophets. There's so many of them that spoke about this coming day of the Lord, this day of judgment that comes upon mankind. I'll give you one. Malachi said this, For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. "'The the coming day will consume them,' says the Lord of armies, "'not leaving them root or branches.'" So Peter says, we need to remember the scriptures. We need, we need to remember, first of all, what the Old Testament prophets wrote about, but not just them. You need to also remember what the, the apostles commanded and what Jesus himself, Jesus himself said in the New Testament scriptures. Notice the end of verse 2, it says, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now he's speaking about the New Testament that hadn't fully even been written yet. But there are 260 chapters in the New Testament, and in those 260 chapters, there are over 300 references to the second coming. There are 27 books in the New Testament. 23 of the 27 refer to the Lord's return explicitly. Jesus, in his sermon of the, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, his disciples ask him, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And he spends two whole chapters in describing what those days were going to look like. So the New Testament is filled with warnings about judgment and information about the second coming of the Lord. So we need to remember, first of all, the Scriptures. Number two, we need to remember history. Look at verse 5. Peter says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Peter says, hey, those of you who say, oh, things are just going to always continue like they've always continued, you've got it all wrong. You're ignoring history. And he points to two cataclysmic events that took place. The first being the creation of the world. That God spoke this world into existence. That he spoke and there was water. And then he spoke and there was landmass that came up out of the water it was it was cataclysmic as God was speaking the world into existence and and Peter says that that same word, world that was was spoken into existence is right now being sustained by the word of God it was his word that spoke it it's his word right now that sustains it and it's his word right later that's going to bring fire upon it heavy what he says so he points first of all to creation as the example and then secondly he points to the flood the great flood in which destroyed the world that God made because of man's wickedness. And it's interesting, that word flooded in verse 6, it's the Greek word catacluso. And what does that sound like to you? Katakluso, it reminds us of the, the word cataclysm or cataclysmic. And that's the idea. He's speaking about the flood was a cataclysmic event that happened in the history of mankind. But I want you to notice that Peter says that they willfully forget this. They willingly ignore this, the flood. And people still do that today. People want to deny that the flood happened. But all we have to do is to pay attention to the fossil record. You know, they have found fossils of whales in Michigan. You know that? And I don't know if you know this, but Lake Michigan, it's a freshwater lake but they found fossils of whales there. They found fossils of sharks in Ohio. How do you explain that? They have found fossils of fish in Wyoming at 7,000 feet above sea level. How did they get up there? You know? And then there's the great slab of sediment near Agate Springs, Nebraska, where the bones of over 9,000 different animals that have been tossed and crushed by water and dirt have been found. So Peter says, we need to remember the scriptures, we need to remember history, and number three, we need to remember the Lord's time frame. Look at verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Do you know the Lord's time frame is different from ours? You realize that? How many of you feel like God's late a lot of the time? Man, I feel like that. Like, come on, Lord. His timetable, his time frame is different from ours. Peter says that to him, one day is, is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. There was a little boy who heard that verse, and he thought, that's interesting. And then he thought about that verse that says that God owns a thousand, or cattle on a thousand hills, and he thought, that's interesting too. That, that means that, that to God, like a million billion dollars is, is like a one dollar. And so he said, Lord, you know, your word tells us that, that one day to you is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day, and you own a cattle on a thousand hills, and so that's like a million billion dollars to you. It's just like a dollar. He says, Lord, could I have a dime? And the Lord said, sure, just give me a minute. <laughs> it's true. God's time frame is different from ours, but I want you to, I want to, this is a word I think for some here. Don't interpret God's delays as denials. See, that's what we often do. God delays, and we think it's a denial. Listen, God always answers. He al- always answers our prayers. He's always moving. He's always working, like that song we sing. Even when we can't see it, he's working. He's moving. God is faithful. And he's going to answer, he's going to come through, and he just wants you to trust him. But this verse, verse 8, is very, very interesting in light of a prophecy that the prophet Hosea spoke in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Let me read this to you, it'll be on the screen. Hosea said, come, speaking to Israel, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will build us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Now, this is a very, very interesting prophecy to consider in light of what Peter says in verse 8. That to the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And if anybody next to you is kind of nodding off right now, just give them an elbow. You have my permission, because because they, they need to hear this, okay? This is fascinating, all right? You see, 2,000 years ago, in God's time frame two days ago, 2,000 years ago, Israel was destroyed, It happened when the Romans, led by General Titus, came down into Israel, and they came to Jerusalem, they ransacked the city, they destroyed the temple, and at that moment, the people of Israel were dispersed, and they went running, they fled for their lives, and they went into all the other nations of the world. Only a small remnant stayed there in Israel. And so we could say that from that point on, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. And they did not exist for 2,000 years until something miraculous happened. On May 14th of 1948, the nation of Israel was reborn. It's something that has never ever happened before to a nation, a group of people that ceased to exist. In the history of the world, this has never happened. A group of people that ceased to exist, a a nation that was no more, suddenly was reborn. And that happened on March 14th to 1948. And so we could say there that Israel was regathered to their homeland. They were reborn after two days, after 2,000 years. But then Hosea said, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. That hasn't happened yet. Israel has not been raised up. They're hated by most of the world. You see, that second part of that prophecy will not be fulfilled until the millennium. Till Jesus comes back at his second coming, he sets up his millennial reign, and it's then that the people of Israel are going to recognize that Jesus was really the Messiah, and they're going to put their faith in him, and he's going to raise them up, and he's going to establish them in his millennial reign, and we will be with him. In Psalm 102, it declares that he will build up Zion at that time. Zion is a reference to Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Jesus said, in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, he said that the city of Jerusalem would be trampled under the feet of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. Okay, so let's put this together. In 1948, the nation is reborn. problem was, they weren't able to reclaim Jerusalem at that time. It was still in the hands of the Gentiles, of the Arab nations. It wasn't until 1967 during the Six-Day War another miracle happens. God moves on behalf of Israel and they reclaim Jerusalem as their capital city. So we could say this, that the prophecy that Jesus uttered that Jerusalem would be trampled under the feet of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, that we could say that that happened in 1967. So that means the rapture could have happened in 1967. You see there's no other prophecy that needs to be fulfilled in order for Jesus to come back for his church. So right now we could say the time frame that we are living in right now today we could call it using a football term we're in overtime. That's the time frame we're in. We're in overtime. And there's a reason why we're in overtime. And that's point number four. Look at the fourth thing Peter wants us to remember is God's character. Look at verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter's telling us, hey, there's a purpose in God's delay. And it's not that God is indifferent. It's not that He's impotent. It's not that He's distracted. We could call this a calculated patience. Because the reason Peter tells us why God is still waiting, the reason why we are in overtime today is because he says he doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone, in other words, to spend eternity in hell. You know, we cry out. We get impatient. Lord, it's been two thousand years. Come on. When are you going to come back? And he says, chill, chill out. It's only been two days. In my time frame, it's only been two days. Just chill. There's a reason. There's a purpose. You see, my heart is so big. God would say, I don't want anyone to perish. So I'm long-suffering. I'm very, very patient. And I'm waiting that more people would, would put their faith in Jesus and more people would embrace him as their Lord and Savior, that more people would realize that he died on the cross to pay their price for their sins. And, and so I'm, I'm waiting. I continue to wait. And I, lo- I love to ask this question when we talk about things like this. If Jesus would have came for his church in 1967... How many of you here in this room, show of hands, that you were not saved in 1967? Just raise your hand up. Okay. A lot of you. How many of you are like, I wasn't even born? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Man, I'm old. (laughs) Okay, how about this one? My dad said that I wasn't going to graduate from high school. I graduated in 1982. He says, Jesus is going to come back. You're not going to graduate from high school. How many of you weren't saved in 1982? Show of hands. Okay. A lot of you. How about 19... I became the pastor here in 1996. How many of you weren't saved in 1996? Okay. A lot of you. How about 2000? How many of you weren't saved, weren't following Jesus in, in the year 2000? Okay. Some of you. How about 2010? Okay. Now, I like to say, aren't you glad? Everybody raise your hand. Aren't you glad he didn't come in 1967? Aren't you glad he didn't come in 1982? Aren't you glad he didn't come in 2000 or 2010? How about this one? How many of you were, anybody here not saved in 2020? 2020? Okay. We've had, oh, there's one. We had, we had one every service. Aren't you glad he didn't come back in 2020? See, God says, look, I'm waiting. I'm I'm patient because I don't want anyone to perish. And God wants us to understand his character. And he also wants to understand, he wants us to understand this. Listen close. He says, The way that I choose to reach people is through people. So I want to use you to reach people in your sphere of influence that don't know me. And he's given us a message. He's like, hey, you guys are like mailmen and women. that I just want you to deliver the message. And it's a message that's powerful that can change a person's eternal destiny if they just put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And so the Lord tells us, hey, I'm waiting and this is why. Because like Joe said, he goes, I've called you to be salt and light in this world remember we talked about this that salt in order for it to be effective it's got to get out of the salt shaker it's got to permeate the meat it's got to touch the wound in order to bring that healing it's got to it's got to you know touch that that it's going to affect And God's saying, that's what I want you to do. I want you to go out into this world, into your spheres of influence, and I want you to touch people with my love. I want you to speak the truth, but to speak it in love. I want you to be these ambassadors of me. This is what I've called you to. This is why I'm waiting. I don't want anybody to perish. And and maybe perhaps, in God's mind, there's a certain number, or there's that, that last person that he's like, okay, when this person finally accepts Jesus, church is out of here. And maybe you're here today and you're that person. You're holding this whole thing up, all right? (laughs) Would you just come on already and open up your heart to Jesus? Yeah. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the hope that we have in the return of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that your heart is so big. And there's room in your family for so many. And Lord, we thank you that you have waited because a lot of us, if you would have came years earlier, we would have been left behind. And so, Lord, I pray today, first of all, For anybody here in this room or anybody that's watching online that has yet to put their faith and trust in You. That they've yet to ask You to be their Lord and Savior. To forgive them of their sins. To cleanse them, to, so that they could be ready, so they could enter in that relationship with you. God, I pray right now in this moment for anybody in this room, anybody watching online, that they would make that decision to say yes to Jesus. Well, her head bowed and her eyes closed. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And anyone opens up, the door of their heart, I'll come in and I'll live there and I'll fellowship with them and and I'll save them and I'll forgive their sin and I'll remove their guilt and I'll do a life-changing work in their life. And if you're here today and, and you have not embraced Jesus Christ and you want to, I just want to give you an opportunity to do that. And I'm going to ask you, if that's you today, to just simply just lift your hand up and I want to pray with you. Anybody at all? God bless you guys. Anybody else? God bless you. Anybody else that would say, yes, that's me? Father, I pray for those that have raised their hand today. And I pray, God, that you would just meet them right now in this moment. And If you raised your hand or you're watching online, I just invite you to just repeat this prayer after me. Just say, dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. And so I'm asking you today to forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of my guilt. And to come into my heart today and make it your home. From this day forward, I want to walk with you. From this day forward, I want to live for you. Just tell them that. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you for accepting me in Jesus' name. For those of you who just said that prayer, we say to you, welcome to the family of God. And our desire as a church is to walk with you, to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus. So I really want to encourage you, especially if you were doing that for the first time, when we dismiss today, there's men and women that'll be up front here on both sides that would love to pray with you. They'd love to encourage you. They'd love to make sure you have a Bible and just make your way up and say, hey, I prayed with the pastor today. If you did it online, you can just go into the chat and say, hey, I prayed with the pastor. Somebody will reach out to you. For the rest of us, why don't we stand right now? Church, maybe you found yourself in a place where you've been asleep in the light. I hope today has maybe stirred you up. Maybe it's awakened you a little bit. Because Jesus, man, He wants His church to be awake. He wants His church to be on fire. He wants us to know the times and the seasons that we are living in. And so I pray today that as we go forth, that your heart would just be emboldened and enlarged concerning who Jesus is and what He wants to do in your life, but also through your life as we continue to be in this overtime period where God is waiting for more people to be saved. And like I said a couple weeks ago, let's pray. Let's say, you know, Lord, give me one. How amazing would it be a year from now heading into Thanksgiving Eve service if everybody in this room had the chance to lead one person to Christ? How amazing that would be. Let's pray that. Lord, just give me one. And allow him to use you in the sphere of influence where he's placed you.